Thank you for allowing me to speak again. I have Dr. Roba sends her Tarzan to three and seven, her mother-in-law to low-intensity chemotherapy, her father-in-law to hospice, a couple of us who live on 68th Street to clinical trials. I have 10 minutes to tell you that she really, they really should go to transplant. Um, and uh, so again, thank you to all the people who really do the work and they are on the right side of the curve. It behooves me to bring you to remind you that it's 60 years ago now that transplant was developed and that the first uh, path-breaking work was done by the group. Well, there was work before, but this was really the work that made transplant possible. The group in Seattle did animal experiments, dog experiments more specifically, and they found that HLA-matched litter mates, so brothers and sisters of the dogs, had excellent survival. Mismatched litter mates, uh, DLA mismatched, had a worse survival. And this, and if they had match transplant with post-transplant GVH prophylaxis, the survival was excellent. So this is really what set the tone exactly uh, 50 years ago, 1968. And very noteworthy also, Dr. Storp, who was involved with these papers, now 50 years later, is still at the top of his field and still continues to make major contributions. I think that's given to very few of us. Ten years later, they showed the first disease where this worked. They presented uh, the outcome of 19 acute leukemia patients, a New England Journal of Medicine pay, paper in complete remission, giving cyclophosphamide and TBI and sibling allotransplant, and about 60% of those patients were in remission at one year. And this was probably the first evidence that leukemia could be cured. But the median age of those patients was 22, and they ranged in age from 9 to 47. So that's, again, not what we deal with. Who do we deal with these days? So, oh, this doesn't move anymore. Okay, when I started, I started in Texas, and this is one of my Texas patients who went back to her rodeo after her transplant, and she was in her 20s. And now I'm in New York, and every year we make a boat ride with our transplant survivors, and this nice gentleman is in his 60s. This lady is probably close to 70, and this gentleman is in his 70s and is dancing with one of our ID consultants. So this is our patient population, a middle-aged population, and I'm rapidly heading in that direction myself. Unfortunately, why is this happening? It's a little bit. The physicians are different. The physicians are getting older, take more difficult patients. The, there are there's better coverage. The patients are also different. The patients, particularly here in New York, and I think everywhere, when you're 60, you want to go on for a while. And uh, nobody retires in the United States at 65. We all keep going, at least in medicine. Perhaps there's also some improvement in transplant, and uh, I'll talk a little bit about that. But this is the reality. If you look at the decade, these are data from IBMTR, so Worldwide Registry. If you look at the era 1992 to 1998, practically all the patients reported were under the age of 60. If you look at the era 2006 to 2012, approximately 20% were over the age of 60. So increasingly transplant patients over the age of 60. Now, that's IBMTR, that's worldwide. This is Weill Cornell, New York, as of two years ago. And 
the large majority of our patients are over 55, and many are in their 60s and 70s. These are our allotransplant patients, and that goes to this 2014-15. This continues to be a median age of about 60, and the oldest patient is 78. So these are the patients we treat, these are the patients we take care of, and that we have to deal with. So, same slide I showed this morning for ALL. One can talk about various problems, the, the various issues here, disease indication, the conditioning regimen, the donor, what does the donor matter, and the fitness for transplant. So let me start with the bottom here. The disease indication, which patient with AML should be transplanted in a perfect world when all the patients when transplant has no toxicity and is as effective as it is. I would say all of them. Why all of them? These are data from uh, recently published also. Patients who are enrolled on CLGB protocols over the years from 1983 to 2004, and they were followed for 10 years, and long-term survival of these selected patients, because it's selected patients that go on protocols, and they were followed for 10 years, and their long-term survival was analyzed. Patients who were transplanted in CR1 were excluded from this analysis. First, the group under age 60, there were 1,600 such patients. 1,200 reached CR. Disappointingly, after 10 years, only 17% were alive. So it's true, we are hanging around the x-axis in AML. But that's not the group I'm talking about. The over 60 I'm talking about, there were 944 patients. A little bit over half reached CR. That may have improved now a little bit with CPX and newer drugs. But again, extremely disappointingly, only 2.4% reach the ripe old age. So AML treatment, at least until 2004, without allotransplant in the patient over age 60 does not guarantee long-term survival. So I would say let's transplant everybody over the age of 60. What conditioning to use? I don't have time to talk much about it. I think it's fair to say that all centers use variants of reduced intensity conditioning regimens. The older busulfan cyclophosphamide TBI-based regimens are considered too toxic for patients over the age of 60. Donor types. These are our donor types at Cornell in patients over the age of 60. It's uh, between 2012 and 2018. Only uh, about 20% of our patients had matched sibling donors. The rest had either matched unrelated donors or, in our case, a haploidentical transplant. So we use fewer matched sibling donors in our older patients than we use in our younger patients. And why is that? It's, in a way, not surprising, but we don't think often enough about it. Older patients have older siblings. Sometimes their siblings have already died because they are even older. And siblings are often less healthy. Ages ago, not ages ago, in my previous institution, Andy Arts, my colleague, got very interested in this issue, and he looked at our older sibling donors. And even in those days, he found that donors over the age of 50 had 
re, uh, were poor mobilizers of stem cells. Of donors over the age of 50, seven out of 106 were poor mobilizers, as opposed to one out of 89 uh, that were under the age of 50. So there's something can go wrong with our stem cells if we are supposedly a healthy older adult sibling of a leukemia patient. And some of that may be familial, by the way. Vice versa, those donors who did mobilize well, those selected donors who did mobilize well, resulted in good outcomes in our hands. And that remains a little bit a mystery, but donor age in a multivariate analysis actually was a uh, favorable prognostic factor. That remains somewhat unexplained, and that's not been recapitulated in other people's studies. So few matched sibling donors and concerns about the health of the matched sibling donors. Therefore, we use unrelated donors. And I've already shown you this morning, unrelated donor transplant results in practically equal results as, uh, as matched related donors. But there are problems here too. We live in a multi-ethnic, multicultural society. And in all the minorities, African-Americans, we find very few, or any person of African descent, we find very few HLA identical and related donors. People of Asian origin, also about 40%, even what we call European Caucasian, also a highly mixed various group, but only 70, 60, 70% do we find unrelated donors. And I would say here in New York, it's less. We have moved to cord blood transplant. Why do we use cord blood transplant? Because cord blood transplant causes very limited chronic graft-versus-host disease despite being mismatched. So mismatching is acceptable. Cord blood transplant has very slow engraftment, but we've at least partially overcome this problem by supplementing these grafts with haploidentical grafts, for usually from a sibling, that are CD34 selected. And what happens with this procedure is the, we gave these two grafts together after appropriate conditioning. The adult cells that are CD34 selected engraft really fast. Patients recover their counts after 10 days. The cord blood graft comes in quite a bit slower, but there's competition between the two grafts that is practically always won by the, uh, hap uh, by the cord blood graft and over long-term periods, the patients develop cord engraftment without the prolonged neutropenia. We've done hundreds of these transplants now. The usual conditioning regimen is fludarabine melphalan with sometimes added total body irradiation. These are our times to engraftment, neutrophil recovery by day 10 in the majority of patients, platelet recovery by day 20. Long-term Outcomes, when we look at all patients, this is not corrected for risk factors, but long-term outcomes, matched-related, matched-unrelated, haplocore transplant, as we call it, really no significant difference in outcome. Admittedly, there are more complications up front, and if I have a good sibling donor, I still prefer a good sibling donor. It's the more important, but still, everybody has a donor. The more important and very difficult issue I find is how to select that patient, how to recognize that, that father-in-law from that patient who is going to do wonderful and who should get the transplant. 
its frailty, its performance status, its comorbidity, but frailty is also we recognize it when we see it, but I'm not sure we always recognize it. And Andy Arts, who spent his career on this, compares transplanting older people with trying to climb the Mount Everest. And as you see here, it's very similar. In the olden days, only 20% of uh, people attempting to climb Mount Everest were over the age of 40. Very few were over the age of 60. And more recently, half of them are over the age of 40 and 12% are over the age of 60. So everybody can attempt to climb Mount Everest now. But attempting is not the same as succeeding. And if you look at all the ones that attempt, the younger people, 40% reach the top. The older people, only 10% reach the top. And quite a few die. So be careful when you attempt to do this. And even if you make it to the top, you get to the top and you survive, but then you have to get back down. And again, a couple of these older people don't make it back down. So that's a little bit where we stand with transplant for older people. Yes, we can try it. Yes, we do it. But do we do it right? Identifying that patient who's going to do well from a biological standpoint, from a frailty standpoint, has turned out to be difficult. And this is all work from Andy. And he looked at comorbidities. And there's other people. But he has done very nice work looking at comorbidities and performance score. Comorbidities really meaning, do you have diabetes? Do you have heart disease? Do you have prostate cancer? Do you have, a lot of us have comorbidities as we age. We can be perfectly around riding our bicycle and have perfect performance scores. So it's a very different thing. If they had both high comorbidity scores and, um, and a poor performance status, 50% treatment-related mortality. Is that enough to turn you down if you have an incurable disease? There's also 50% that survive it. Even if you had a low comorbidity score and perfect performance, that is 15% treatment-related mortality. So a good correlation, but not a good predictor. A better predictor, I find, a more practical predictor, is the instrumental activities of daily life. You just ask this older gentleman, do you do your own cooking? No, my wife does it usually. Do you do your finances? Do you drive your car? You get a score for all these things. It really tells you patients are active, patients are busy, patients are engaged, and that has really tells you at least allows you to weed out those patients who really are not able to withstand the rigors. And in this analysis, having a high or a low score on these instrumental activities of daily life and high comorbidities, patients did very very poorly. The ones that did well were the ones that were functional. But still, it's difficult. And add to this the things that, again, we don't talk enough about because we don't have good measures. It's the social support. It's the financial support. And it's what I'm worried about increasingly is the mental acuity. There's, at least over the age of 70, there's a, a degree of early dementia that we sometimes unmask with all our post-transplant drugs that really, and that we have been very difficult, uh, very much at pains to predict. Now, that said, let me give you five examples here of how this works, and these are all real patients. 72-year-old gentleman, 70-year-old man, 73-year-old female, these are all real patients, and my colleagues will recognize all of them. 69-year-old, 70-year-old, 
This first gentleman had polycythemia vera for 20 years, multiple treatments, interferon, uh, hydrea, phlebotomies. He was in a spent phase with splenomegaly, with pancytopenia, with lung involvement. This was biopsy-proven lung involvement, so not much time left for him. This gentleman had an AML. He had been previously ha healthy, got the cytobine without a response, got 3 and 7, uh, had a partial remission, but clearly more than measurable, more than minimal measurable residual disease. This lady had had MDS for eight years, was turned into an AML, had received CPX, had CR, followed by relapse, followed by venetoclax, and decided to be no response. This gentleman had a long history of MDS, MPD, had AML, turned into, um, received the cytobine and had blast reduction. And the last gentleman had azacytidine for myelodysplastic syndrome and did not recover his count. So all of them had a poor, poor prognosis with conventional chemotherapy. Two of them had siblings with hematological disorders, and that is increasingly an issue. So what did we do? Or what else? This gentleman had quite a bit comorbidities. This one had none. This lady had a history of AFib. This gentleman had massive comorbidities, atrial fibrillation with cardioversion, history of GI hemorrhage, had required a lobectomy for a fungal infection during his AML treatment. And this gentleman was in great shape and very active. All of these people were well supported, all had social support, KPS scores, activities of daily life, a little bit of a guess because we didn't do it yet. Should we transplant this man with prostate cancer, with lung involvement? Should we transplant this man with uh, all these comorbidities who had already lost part of his lung? Should we transplant this older lady who has refractory AML? We transplanted them all, rightly or wrongly so. What happened to them? Only one had an HLA identical sibling. A second one had an HLA identical sibling, but she was unable to donate. So none of them had matched unrelated donors. So all of them got our, except for one, all of them had our haplocore transplant. All had similar conditioning regimens. And then what happened to them? A couple got acute graft-versus-host disease, but it all resolved. It was quite severe in a couple of them, but got under control. None of them developed chronic graft-versus-host disease. And this is, to me, the, the, the beauty of this core transplant approach. We get very few scleroderma-like uh, chronic graft-versus-host disease. What else happened to them? The first patient had RSV in the first year. He had a bout of varicella. He had post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorder, but he overcame it all, and he's now two and a half years out, and this is how his CT scan now looks, how he did well despite all this. And he, is really he still runs his company. The second one also went back to normal life, was very active, was involved in all kinds of organizations, had a great three years, had one late pneumonia, had PTLD at four years after transplant, unfortunately, and never overcame that, and died after five years in remission. The third one had a bout of depression, but she's now also seven months out and in remission, despite refractory leukemia. The fourth one had a horrible course in the first two years, was intubated a couple of times. We never thought he was going to get through. The last two years have been great, and he continues to do quite well. 
And the fifth one, the gentleman who we all expected to do well, he, he was very active, developed neurologic toxicity, slipped in a coma and died within two months after transplant. So my conclusion, conventional chemotherapy for all the patients rarely results in durable remission. So there's a, a major role for allogeneic transplantation and it needs to involve alternative donors. The biggest issue as far as I'm concerned, is to recognize that patient who will do well. And in truth, we cannot with our current uh, tools. Our tools to predict outcome are blunt, and they are more correlates of outcome than predictors of outcome. And they do not justify either denying or recommending transplant in individual cases. With that, thank you for your attention.